Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we cover the media the way news is reported. No story has generated more coverage in 2022 than Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The imagery coming out of the country has been relentless. Cities laid to waste, civilians suffering en masse, the exodus of millions of refugees. A war that some analysts had predicted would last just a few days is now into its fourth month, which suggests that Russian President Vladimir Putin underestimated badly the resistance his forces would encounter. The Kremlin is also up against a telegenic opponent, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, whose team includes former TV producers skilled in the battle for hearts and minds. On this special edition of our program, a listening post timeline, a chronology of our reports from the build-up to the invasion right through the messaging and the global media's news coverage. Our starting point is six weeks before the war began, January 15th, 2022. One hundred thousand Russian troops amassed on or near the border with Ukraine. Moscow and Washington both sticking to their positions in negotiations over NATO expanding to the east. Out of the west, headlines reminding us the stakes are high. And Russia's state-approved media, if not beating, at least tapping, the drums of war. On the surface, it all sounds very 2014 when Russian forces invaded Ukraine and annexed Crimea. Only a lot of things have changed since then. Absolutely, you don't have the sort of war frenzy vibe that you did in 2014 when the, the state TV hosts are really frothing at the mouth for, over Ukraine. And there are a few reasons for that. Firstly, the, the magic Crimea dust uh, that worked so well for Putin that sent his uh, approval ratings to record levels for a time, it's, it's really worn off because it's, the circumstances have changed. There's much more of a focus on uh, rising inflation, falling incomes, and the pandemic. This whole mess around Ukraine and around Ukraine's uh, so-called integration to NATO uh, is, uh, in my opinion, connected to Vladimir Putin's internal popularity and his ratings, which are not very good. And uh, it's funny how Russian state media covers the situation because to them, and the main goal is to cover anything except internal problems, anything except the violation of human rights or killing the free press. The Russian president signaled his intentions on Ukraine last July and not by conventional means. Rather than issue a press release or hold a news conference, the Kremlin posted a 5,000 word essay that it said was written by Vladimir Putin himself on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians. That essay was posted in three languages, aimed at three audiences, Russian, Ukrainian, and English speakers. Um, Putin's essay did was a history lesson about what he says was Ukrainian and Russian unity. But in reality, it, it was an essay of disinformation Putin's language for unity is basically we were united because we colonized you and because we subjected you to our power. It had nothing to do with their liberty and their choice. Tensions between Russia and the West are growing rapidly. Starting with an argument that's coming out of Moscow these days on the role the media play in the Ukraine story, an equivalence that's as false as they come. 
It's one you'll sometimes hear from journalists employed at Russian state-owned news channels like RT. Most Russian media outlets echo the Kremlin's line on Ukraine, but then again, most Western media outlets echo the White House's line on Ukraine. In Russia, it's not only the state media that kind of runs the line, it's also the private media that's not controlled by the Kremlin, and it's the same in the West. I mean, the BBC tows the British government line, and the Times or the Telegraph, which are notionally independent, they do the very same thing. No, they do not. Western media outlets are prone to echoing some of their government's positions on geopolitical conflicts. But they're also free to present contrary opinions and to speak truth to power. Don't believe it? Just search Joe Biden, legislative record, or Boris Johnson, lockdown parties. Try that kind of journalism in Russia, on Vladimir Putin, and you're liable to be branded a foreign agent. Have your news channel taken off the air or, like dissident Alexei Navalny, get thrown into prison. There is no equivalence. Which is not to say that when it comes to the history of Russia, Ukraine, and NATO, the Russians don't have some legitimate points to make. One has always to ask, where does this story begin? And for the Russians, it goes back to the 1990s and the diplomacy that ended the Cold War which the West took advantage of. There's also an element of truth to the story that they're telling, and there is a way in which the Western media just simply conveniently forgets the complexities of the situation in Ukraine. And it's undeniable that from the 90s onwards, NATO set its uh, sails towards expansion, and that has left Moscow uneasy ever since. And whenever any government in Kiev makes a step towards the West, the alarm bells go off in Moscow. In a 21st century information war, waged on multiple digital fronts, the Russian attack on the TV tower in Kiev felt like a throwback to an earlier, simpler time, when television was king, and taking over the airwaves meant that an invading force or rebel army could control the narrative. TV no longer matters the way it once did, but it clearly matters to Vladimir Putin. The attacking of the Kiev uh, TV tower was, of course, a deliberate strategy. This is where the uh, actual war and uh, media war are converging, because Putin did his best to have Russian society brainwashed by propaganda. So he assumes that everyone else is like that too, which is uh, wrong on many different levels, because it's really not like Ukrainians are only fighting back the because their television tells them to. Captain Army Alexander Lysenko tragically died during To hear the Russian media describe it, there is no war in Ukraine, just a special military operation ordered by the Kremlin. When the independent outlet TV Dodged called it an invasion instead, and the radio station Echo Moskvi did the same, the prosecutor general's office ordered them to be taken off the air. There are tit-for-tat measures taken over the information side of this war by political players and big tech companies. The European Union has banned Russian state-owned channels RT and Sputnik, leaving it to its member states and their regulators to enforce the new policy. 
YouTube, TikTok, and Meta, which controls Facebook and Instagram, have all blocked RT and Sputnik news content. Google has removed the channels from its news search tool and dropped their mobile apps from its Play Store. Russia's media regulator subsequently throttled Twitter, slowing its loading speed down to a crawl for what it called Twitter's failure to take down fake news posts on Ukraine. There are better ways to deal with Russian misinformation and disinformation than just outright censorship. I'm worried about the precedent that sets, for one. And if the West is condemning the Russian government for cracking down on speech and free media over in Russia, it's not a great look for the West to be engaging in activities that appear uh, to be the same. Back to the international side of the Ukraine story now, and an aspect of the news coverage that has left many viewers shaking their heads. Some reporters and television hosts, white ones, pointing out how relatable Ukrainian refugees are with their blonde hair, their blue eyes. Using words like civilized to distinguish Ukrainians from the kind of refugees that journalists have covered from Syria, for example, or Afghanistan. These are incidents, terms that have somehow slipped out during the live coverage of news, when stuff tends to happen. However, the framing and the terminology expose a thing or two about double standards in reporting depending on a refugee's skin color or their religious beliefs. H.A. Hellier has spent a career in academia studying Europe's treatment of ethnic minorities. He joins us now. Mr. Hellier, let's start with this. There's not a great deal of subtlety, is there, in some of the bias that we've seen in the journalism on Ukraine, particularly the refugee angle. What has the coverage of this story told you about the hierarchy of human worth insofar as some elements of the media are concerned? So I'm glad you said some elements in the media because I think a lot of people have actually done the job really well over the past week. Um, but we're focusing quite rightly on not just a few rotten apples, but quite a large uh, phenomenon that exists in, in much of the Western media. These are um, Christians, they're white, they're, um, they're very similar to people, many people who live in Poland. And, they're all and there is a hierarchy. Um, and the hierarchy has to do with race. The hierarchy has to do with religious affiliation. We're talking about war in the Ukraine and the barbarism that is unfolding as though it was somehow uh, unique. It's not unique. Now the unthinkable has happened to them. And this is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe. We've seen much worse than this many times uh, just over the past decade. And the, the shock and horror that you see from some elements in the Western media as though uh, this was something unique and special. Of course, it is special because everybody's suffering is special, but it's not unique. And when we make that argument that it is unique, that we haven't seen this before, it means that we're raising and making invisible all those people that have suffered so tremendously in other places, very often, by the way, at the hands of the same military hardware that Vladimir Putin is putting to work in Ukraine. This is what an information war looks like when it hits the streets. Police in Moscow's Lubyanka Square, wrapped in body armor, 
seizing the phones of citizens, searching for evidence of resistance. Telltale social media content about the war in Ukraine that can land people in prison. It's doom scrolling, Russian style. Moscow is one of the most surveilled cities in the world. It has an incredible system of facial recognition technology. And if you are to go out uh, into the streets when you know that you will be punished for it, when it's your phone taken and everything, including your contacts and everything else, yeah, it's chilling. All this is so draconian. This approach is not sustainable long term. And the more extreme measures uh, uh, of policing and censorship the government is using, the more we should recognize it as a sign of weakness. Anyone calling the war in Ukraine what it is, a war, as opposed to the Kremlin's Orwellian term, a special military operation, is now at risk of 15 years behind bars. That new law applies to foreign journalists as well and has effectively paralyzed their outlets operating in Russia. Normally uh, based in Moscow, but since the Kremlin shut down our bureau, then revoked accreditation. With television brought to heel long ago, the authorities used to tolerate a few independent news outlets, in print and online. That is no longer the case. Dojd, a news channel that lived on YouTube, and the radio station Eka Moskvi are now out of business. Many of their journalists have fled the country. could not imagine that it would happen so fast that they would just ruin everything in a couple of days, that they would just, you know, shut down. The war with TV, TV Rain, with Dorst, started in 2014, uh, when the popularity of our channel was so high that the government of Russia understood that something should be done. We have millions of viewers and the journalists and anchors of TV Rain were the most famous people in Russia. Dorst was the only liberal, alive TV channel discussing things that were banned on other TV stations. So after the revolution and then Crimea annexation and then war in Donbas, Dorst became a problem for the government.
obviously I'm out of country. Uh, we were obliged to leave Russia because of the situation, which was devastating. We have faced military censorship. We have faced serious signals from different people, different sources that we were not safe in Russia anymore. And also me personally and a couple of my colleagues were getting threats from different people, calls, messages, terrible things. The website of TV Raid was blocked. And to me, this was the final signal, final call. I was absolutely sure, no chance that we would survive in this country. So that's why we have left. We want to see it as a temporary slowdown, as a temporary pause. I'm sure that something will be done. I'm sure that TV Rain will be back uh, in some kind of form. And I'm sure that it's not the end. This is what remains of Mariupol in southeastern Ukraine. A besieged city the Kremlin does not want the world to see. A maternity hospital bombed, graves piling up. Images captured by two AP journalists who say their names were on a list to be hunted down by Russians. As they reported, with no information coming out, no pictures of demolished buildings and dying children, Russian forces could do whatever they wanted. If not for us, there would be nothing. And while those soldiers are out to stop journalism, they may as well target any Ukrainian with a mobile phone. Ukrainians have been mm, incredibly effective communicators because they've got a good story to tell. They're doing what anyone in this situation in the 21st century would do. Instead of taking selfies of yourself in a shopping mall, you are taking selfies of yourself in a bomb shelter and you're posting them out and to, you know, you're contributing to telling the stories. Where Russian forces have been unable to take control of an area, such as Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, they have forced the population into submission through airstrikes and artillery. Kharkiv has been leveled, largely abandoned, and Maria Avdieva has stayed behind. She's new to citizen journalism, a would-be witness to war crimes, who does her work with one eye on the International Court of Justice in The Hague. I am here to document the war crimes committed by Putin and his regime. I was not uh, you know, a war reporter or uh, anyone who was active on social media. But when the war started and I saw that the, this disinformation wave coming out of Russia, I saw that my role in this fight might be in uh, information battlefield. They deny the fact of war in Ukraine. They deny the fact of genocide, killing of civilians and children. Because Russia uses information as another kind of weapon. You hear the silence right now when I speak to you. That it doesn't stop day and night. Russia continues terrorizing my city. So that's why I'm trying to give as much information from the ground so that the uh, court in Hague will use these evidences to punish those who were responsible for committing war crimes in Ukraine. With all of the news channels the Kremlin has at its disposal, and a disinformation industry that's been years in the making. Vladimir Putin entered this war of narratives, holding most of the cards. 
Despite that, the Russians have proven incapable of stopping the news coming out of the battlefield. Citizen journalism, powered by mobile phone technology, is a big part of that. So is traditional war zone reporting. Correspondents and camera crews in the field with targets on their back. Ukraine, in its darkest hour, is experiencing a golden age of journalism, if that's any consolation. Putin's biggest miscalculation in this war has been Ukrainian resistance and Ukrainian resilience. The way that the Ukrainian identity has been shaped by the revolutions and by the war of the last decade has been incredible to watch. This is a society that is operating on adrenaline right now entirely. And we should be really conscious of that, that behind that strength and that resilience is, uh, is an enormous trauma. Vlogging from his bunker, beaming into parliaments in combat fatigues, welcoming world leaders on the streets of war-torn Kyiv. Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky has a flair for public relations, winning the world's hearts and minds one photo op at a time. He was a comedian. He had never held political office before 2019. He didn't know anything about public policy, but he is indisputably the right man for the job because he knows how to communicate and he knows how to communicate brilliantly in Russian which drives Vladimir Putin crazy right a photogenic president who by comparison is making Vladimir Putin's PR game fall flat lacking the digital savviness or panache Putin has stuck to his old playbook media personalities parroting his talking points alongside his own turgid personal performances that would give even the best communications team little to work with. That contrast, Volodymyr 2.0 versus Vladimir 1.0, was on full display in last week's Victory Day speeches. Absolutely President Putin and his suit, uh, he looked very staid. He looked very much a sort of elderly political figure of the last century and somebody who wasn't thinking in terms of the medium in quite the same way. In Zelensky's address, that black and white video shot in the ruined city. Very carefully scripted, very carefully structured to catch the international audience and make it clear that for him, this is, yes, obviously a war that his country is involved in, but it's also a much wider issue for the world. Putin and Zelensky have very different aims and different goals in their public discourse. So whereas for Zelensky, one of his aims is to bring the Ukrainian nation together, and the other one is to appeal to the West. Putin's aims are very different. Putin's aims with his own domestic audience is actually to keep them disinterested. He doesn't need great support or even the rallying around the flag. He just needs the Russian public not to be fervently anti-Putin and not to go out onto the streets. Begging the question, who really comes out ahead in this information war? Zelensky with his digital diplomacy and penchant for PR, 
or Putin with the messengers in the Russian media doing his bidding. The positive reviews, the accolades that Zelensky is getting around the world are of no consolation, though, to Ukrainians, whose homes and lives have been shattered by Russian bombs falling from the sky. And ultimately, the skies, not the airwaves, not the news feeds, are where this war will be won or lost. A war that so many analysts told us would never happen is now into its fourth month. If the adversaries are looking for a way out, they have yet to find one. The fight to control the narrative goes on, with propaganda and disinformation polluting our news feeds. And at least 20 reporters, photographers and fixers, most of them Ukrainian, have been killed covering the war. Russian journalism is another casualty, with most independent voices intimidated into silence. Despite the reporting challenges, the fog of war in Ukraine will continue to follow this story and how the global media are covering it here at The Listening Post.